1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies, one of the New Books Network podcasts. Uh, My name is David Fauser. Today, I am joined by Andre Magnin, Associate Professor in Sociology and Social Studies at the University of Regina. His book is When Wheat Was King, The Rise and Fall of the Canada-UK Grain Trade, published by University of British Columbia Press in 2016. Uh, Dr. Magnin, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a
1: pleasure. Wonderful. Let's start by talking about your own personal background and your disciplinary training uh, and then how you came to this particular project.
0: Sure. Uh, Well, originally uh, in my undergraduate uh, work, I studied biochemistry of all things. Uh, So not a social science, but I was at that time uh, interested in the natural sciences. And it was towards the end of my undergrad degree in uh, biochemistry that I got interested in the topic of genetically modified crops. And, um, it's sort of the controversy that was emerging around those at the time. This was in the late 1990s. Um, and, uh, that's what sort of, uh, sparked my interest in the whole social side of this emerging technology, the kind of social and political controversy around these new crops. And, uh, that's, uh, what inspired me to pursue a degree in sociology for my, uh, master's and, uh, and, uh later on, my PhD.
1: And is this research uh, research that you began as a graduate student or did you pick it up later?
0: Uh, during my, my grad studies, uh, during my, my master's uh, studies, I studied the inter- introduction of uh, GM crops to the prairie region of Canada, Saskatchewan specifically, my home province. And so that was sort of a study of uh, uh, how these crops got introduced and what some of the implications might be for farmers and for the agricultural industry and then with my phd studies i took that uh, a little bit further uh, in looking at uh, first of all the um, attempt to introduce genetically modified wheat to the canadian prairies which ultimately failed so it was a, an interesting example of um, a corporation in this case monsanto developing a new technology a new gm crop uh, this time for wheat Uh, And uh, actually being prevented from introducing that crop to commercial production because basically a farmer opposition. And uh, in fact, one of the big reasons why GM wheat was not adopted was because the Canadian Wheat Board, a very important institution, in the history of the prairie wheat economy was opposed to introducing this crop because they were afraid it was going to destroy their ability to sell wheat to europe for example and other very high value markets
1: and when exactly did this happen this is in the early 2000s
0: yeah the gm wheat controversy happened in the early 2000s i believe monsanto officially pulled the The plug on this project in 2004. So yeah, it was really in sort of the, those three or four years between 2000 and 2004 when this was a a, a really hot topic uh, here on the Canadian prairies.
1: And that that's, so that's really interesting to see how this project came out of that because hearing that that's where you started and and then thinking about how the book works, it's as though you sort of went you know, went backwards in time to sort of work out the the long historical and social developments that, that led to that.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, the more I learned about the Canadian wheat board and its role in the Canadian wheat economy, uh, the more interested I became in, in the history of the, that institution and the way it served to connect the wheat producing region of Canada to other parts of the world, going all the way back to the time of uh, the, the European settlement of the area.
1: Indeed. And, and I think this is a great moment to transition to uh, a sort of broad historical narrative. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, if you could spell out uh, the, the what you see as the major stages in the historical development of this, we'll keep it fairly brief at this point, uh, give us some key dates, and then we can come back in and fill in each of these stages of development. So where does the story really begin for you?
0: Sure. Well, I I start the story off by talking about the European settlement of the Prairie region. Um, There's, of course, an important history of uh, colonization, of dispossession and displacement of Indigenous peoples that it was a precursor to or a condition for that settlement. But uh, it's not something that I uh, get into in the book. Um, But, uh, you know, if we pick up the story around the 1870s, Canada has just become a, a... Confederation, a new uh, country with several provinces, and it's you know its population base is in eastern Canada, but there is this notion from the beginning that uh, Canada needs to expand westward and incorporate what was then called the Northwest Territories into the country, and that they would open this region up for wheat production, specifically and other natural resource development, I suppose, in order to create a national economy. So it's a project of national uh, economic and social development, and uh, so there was, you know, a whole political process for bringing these territories into the country. Uh, and then there was a great deal of, uh, of effort and political capital spent on uh, designing an immigration program that would bring European settlers, for the most part, to the prairie region to start breaking the soil, to start planting the uh, wheat crops and uh, turn this into a wheat exporting Uh, Region. That process was. Can can I ask one? Sorry, can
1: I ask one quick question? Uh, Just about geographical uh, locations here. How do we define the prairies geographically? For those for those of our listeners who might not be super familiar with Canadian geography.
0: Yeah, for sure. We're we're talking about the uh, the region between the Rocky Mountains uh, to the west and. Almost all the way to the well to to the, the border of uh, Ontario, let's say in the east, where uh, where you start uh, getting into the Canadian Shield and boreal Forest. So there's a very very large um, region uh, between those uh, you know western and eastern uh, boundaries that was native uh, prairie. So few trees, you know. Um, Uh, A very important ecosystem, uh, actually, but native prairie and uh, also very important to that ecosystem originally was the bison herd, which was, you know, numbered in the many millions uh, that were the the grazers. Right. So uh, and of course, the indigenous people, uh, they depended on the uh, the bison and its uh, seasonal uh, movements for their own livelihoods.
1: All right. Okay. so we've got our space. We've got our initial time. Uh, So we've got this project of national development very much to incorporate this particular uh, geographic region into the broader Canadian, uh, you know, nation and and political economy. Okay, All right. Uh, Let's let's continue. So. So how does this work out then in the 1880s, 1890s and 1900s?
0: Yeah, well, you know, initially this was a very, very difficult thing to convince people to come to this pretty remote uh, part of the world, you know, it's a cold climate, the winters get extremely cold, uh, long winter season, and so on. Um, and there was, you know, really not much infrastructure or anything, of course, uh, out here, very little European settlement. So it's hard to convince people to come, and to make uh, matters worse, in the 1870s, there was, uh, you know, a, a large scale uh, international depression, and wheat prices were low, and so on and so forth. So that made things really, really difficult. It's not until about the 1890s, the mid 1890s, that you start seeing a, a real surge in immigration to the area. And that's partly because the world economy improves, because wheat prices improve and so on. Um, and then between the mid 1890s to you know, the next two decades, you see a very, very rapid influx of European uh, settlers and others from uh, settlers from the, the U.S. or from eastern Canada. To the region and really an explosion in the number of farms, uh, a, a huge increase in the amount of wheat produced and uh, eventually exported uh, as well. So I would say it's in those two decades that this really takes off. And by you know the time that First World War uh, rolls around, you have widespread settlement, um, tens of thousands of uh, small family farms, and you're producing and exporting a couple of million tons of, of wheat every year.
1: And then the First World War really is the beginning of a, a major period of transition. And, and you identify 1914 to 1945 as as a kind of uh, a, per- a period of crisis and, and flux between this first UK-centered uh, food regime. And, and we'll come back to the idea of food regime in a moment. Mm-hmm. But we have this first regime, 1870 to 1914, a period of transition, 1914 to 45. And then after the Second World War is over, we get a a more stable food regime uh, again a a second one right
0: yes that's right yeah you know can you tell us a little
1: bit about the period of of crisis caused by the two wars
0: yeah certainly Um, well I mean there's so so many things are happening happening at once but uh, on the one hand it's kind of a signal that the UK's uh, dominance in the world order is uh, being challenged and and ultimately um, it gets replaced in a certain sense by the US uh, by by the end of the Second World War, and in terms of kind of uh, world markets and international trade, it's a period of great. Um uh, disturbance and uh, kind of chaos and confusion um, starting in the 1920 although well, the wars are of course a huge disruption to international trade and countries have to find a sort of creative way to make sure those wheat shipments are still happening because at this moment the UK has become very heavily dependent on imported wheat as a major part of the national diet uh, you know even in calorie terms Um, the UK was absolutely dependent on these imports of wheat. So there had to be a a way to to figure out how to keep those wheat shipments uh, moving. And there's some interesting history there, which we could get into later perhaps. Uh, But then, uh, you know, between the wars with the Great Depression, uh, this causes another uh, huge shock to the international uh, system and to international trade for wheat. In the 1920s, at the end of the 20s, The international price for wheat is basically in free fall. This is a big crisis for this new population of wheat producers on the prairies who are very, very heavily dependent on uh, the price of wheat for their their income and their well-being. And uh, farmers' movements and governments in Canada are kind of scrambling to find a way to stabilize uh, farm incomes to... Uh, address the crash in the price of wheat to figure out a way to keep uh, moving that wheat crop, which, you know, you're growing every year, no matter what the price is, um, into international markets so that the whole wheat economy doesn't collapse. Uh, Then, you know, with the Second World War, it's kind of a reprise in some ways of what came with the First World War and all of the uh, disruption of maritime trade and so on. Uh, and you know ultimately what's really interesting for me in this study is that it's during the second world war towards the end of that conflict That Canada finally settles on this system of single desk wheat marketing which essentially means farmers will be compelled to de- deliver their wheat to the Canadian wheat board then the wheat board will sell that wheat on their behalf and return all of the proceeds back to farmers that sort of highly government-coordinated uh, marketing system comes out of the experience of the Second World War and is in place for the next uh, quite a long time. Well, you know, if we if we look at the, the dismantling of the, the wheat board in 2012, so from the early 40s to uh, 2012, that's uh, nearly 70 years.
1: And the Canadian wheat board is, is absolutely central to the second phase, the second sort of stable food regime that you describe in the book. Uh, which I believe you call the, uh, is it the mercantile industrial?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting because the Canadian wheat board is um, it's got its own history. It's unique in certain ways, but it was uh, typical in other ways of how uh, governments of industrialized countries responded to the depression and the war. They uh, basically set up different, you know different mechanisms of government control or coordination over uh, agriculture, and so the wheat board was was the way that Canada did this, um, and it did become extremely important for the next uh, few decades. It was essentially the 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 institution or the agency that connected those wheat producers to world markets. And it was very popular with with farmers to have this uh, agency in place, because uh, the wheat board was able to overall stabilize wheat prices, offer a, a minimum wheat price, so provide a bit of price protection for farmers. And the idea was that selling wheat collectively through a single agency was better uh, than having farmers compete against one another, essentially as sellers of wheat. If there's only one place where you can get Canadian Wheat and it's through the Canadian Wheat Board as an international customer, you've got to negotiate with that agency, which has a lot of marketing power, uh, a lot of commercial power, just given the, the sheer size and, uh, and volume of the crop that it is handling. It became sort of a, a one-stop shop for, for international customers of Canadian Wheat.
1: And of course, at any moment that we consider Canadian wheat, we also have to consider the global markets for that, or in the, in the case of this particular work, the market in the United Kingdom. But that's really in flux, is really, is really shifting somewhat in the post-war period. Can you tell us about where Canadian wheat is going and, and uh, what the sort of dominant uh, global forces are in this second stable food regime?
0: Yeah, you're, you're quite right. And just to go back to the first regime for just a moment i mean that was very much driven by the uk's need for for imports it was this industrial powerhouse it was this trading powerhouse and yet it quite deliberately um, chose to uh, sacrifice its own agricultural production for cheap imports and that was sort of a reflection of its power in the world market it could import these massive volumes of wheat and meat from other places to feed its working classes and then that allowed it to uh, focus its attention on industrial production and exports Um, so that was a a strategy by the uk and essentially it was the reason for being of the, the prairie wheat economy was to service this huge uk import market so canada became very dependent on exports to europe but the uk specifically and that whole strategy on behalf of the uk uh was called into question with the second world war you know with the, with the huge disruption caused by the war uh government leaders became acutely aware that that import dependence was a risky strategy uh and that it made them vulnerable so after the second world war the uk kind of abandoned that to uh, to a certain degree and started to focus more on its um on its uh, own agricultural production. So uh, it started to restrict imports and to erect tariffs and those sorts of things to encourage its own domestic agricultural production. And that was going to affect uh, Canada's exports uh, quite dramatically. And the other thing that that happened that was quite interesting at this time was that the UK uh, using public money developed uh, some new baking technology that actually changed the requirements for, uh, for wheat for its huge milling and baking industry. Essentially, they were able to develop a technology that made, them, uh, made it less important for them to import the same quantities of Canadian wheat, and it allowed them to use more of their own domestically grown wheat, uh, which was, again, sort of a strategy of import substitution. Um, so with that, you see, you know, over the decades from about the 50s to the 80s, quite a, a precipitous decline in UK imports of Canadian wheat.
1: And what's the role of the United States in, in well, not so much the role, but how does the United States, uh, as, a, as a major producer of wheat in the post-war period, how does that affect Canada's role uh, in in as a major as a major exporter of wheat as well.
0: Yeah, that postwar period is super interesting for Canada-U.S. relationships, especially around wheat. You're quite right. The U.S. comes back after the Second World War uh, as a major producer and exporter of wheat. They kind of eased off of uh, wheat exports in the sort of interwar period in the early 1900s, but they come back after the Second World War with this huge capacity to produce. All kinds of agricultural commodities but wheat included and that means that Canada and the US are competitors. Now, the interesting thing uh, about this period is that Canada, the kind of wheat that Canada is producing, which is a hard red spring wheat, is very, very highly valued in the international market. Essentially, it's the best quality wheat that you can get for industrial bread production and customers are willing to pay a premium for that wheat. The U.S. at this time is not really able to compete directly with Canada in that high-quality segment of the wheat market. So the two countries essentially work out this cooperative uh, arrangement where they are uh, basically coordinating their price-setting behavior. And what happens is that every day the Canadian Wheat Board publishes the price of wheat uh, publicly, it, it announces it, and then the US would basically um, set its own wheat prices as a certain discount compared to the Canadian wheat. So Canada was allowed to play this role in sort of setting the international price of wheat, and then the US would kind of uh, set its its discount based on on Canada's actions. So this gave Canada quite a lot of influence in the international wheat market and the US went along with this, kind of tolerated this, because it knew it couldn't directly compete with uh, Canada in that high quality wheat segment. That kind of arrangement lasted until well into the 1960s, uh, but then it sort of started to fall apart in the mid-60s and beyond.
1: So we'll we'll come to the disintegration of that arrangement in the early 1970s, but let me ask one question first. It might be a little much for me to to expect you to have these figures. Yeah. Uh, but could you could you give an indication of the relative size of the American and Canadian wheat export? Yeah, um,
0: yeah that's that's a great question. I don't have those numbers at my uh, fingertips, but I know that um, you know in the twenties, thirties, forties, and so on, Canada was a much larger exporter. Of wheat than the U.S. I, th- you know, if I if I'm not uh, mistaken, I think they counted for up to you know 30 to 40 percent of the international wheat trade some years, and that was quite a bit higher than the U.S. And things start to kind of um, even out a little bit more in terms of share of the world market. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, during the 50s, 60s, and so on, the U.S. and Canada are quite close in their uh, export share. But the other interesting thing uh, about that period is that the the two countries and other exporters kind of carve the world market up in this uh, very uh, unusual way. Um, The US, after the Second World War, starts a food aid program where it uh, basically sells wheat at a heavily discounted price to certain third world countries that are considered important strategic uh, allies. Um, And it allows those countries to pay for U.S. wheat using their local currency, which is a big benefit to those countries as well. So they are using this as a way to dispose of huge wheat surpluses and wheat stocks and also to kind of build a customer base in these uh, developing countries. Now, um, because the U.S. is doing this with food aid, that sort of cuts Canada out of the market for those same third world countries. Canada simply can't compete. With the, with the food aid uh, that the U.S. is providing. However, what Canada does in response is that it starts to work out these very large commercial wheat exporting deals with communist countries, such as the Soviet Union and China. At the time, of course, the U.S. is uh, it has imposed an embargo on uh, trading with communist countries. So this is seen by Canada as a way to develop its own export markets and uh, deal with its own wheat surpluses or, you know, make make sales uh, in a a part of the world uh, wheat system, let's say, that the U.S. is not going to touch. So there's this interesting implicit uh, agreement between the U.S. and Canada to carve up the world market in this way. Uh, And and as I explain in the book, that's relatively stable for about two to two and a half
1: decades. But it really comes apart in, I believe, 1972 with the beginning of American wheat sales to the Soviet Union.
0: That's right. Yes. So, uh, you know, very, very famously in the history of the the world wheat trade, 1972 is this year that the the Soviet Union is basically desperate for a huge quantity of wheat, because I I believe it's because of a a crop failure uh, in its own sort of uh, orbit of Soviet allies. And uh, yes, this is the moment when the US finally breaks that That embargo and agrees to uh, ships you know several million tons of wheat and other commodities I believe as well to the USSR and what that does effectively is it in you know very short order in the space of a few months it basically clears the the surplus hanging over the, the commercial wheat market which means that prices dramatically rise uh, for, for all sorts of, uh, food commodities. Some people refer to this as the first world food crisis because of the really rapid spike in food prices. And so in the the kind of tradition I'm working in the food regimes, um, tradition, this is seen as a turning point, uh, where the whole structure of the world wheat market basically, uh, changes very, very rapidly.
1: And that leads to then this, this second period of transition from the early 1970s through, if I recall into the mid 90s when you start to get a more stable regime re-emerging.
0: Yeah there's a you know there's some debates about that uh, with the, the experts in this field, but uh, yeah, I think it makes sense to date that transition period from 1972 to 1995 when the World Trade Organization is created.
1: And how, how then is the uh, period since 1995, uh, to what extent does it constitute a new, a third sort of stable food regime?
0: Well, there's a debate and disagreement about that as well, but um, I'll give you sort of the, the, the rough outline of the argument for saying that this is a new food regime. Uh, so first of all, the, the creation of the World Trade Organization is a very significant moment because this is a body that will regulate um world trade for the vast majority of the world's countries, and it has a mandate to liberalize trade, to bring in a a form of free trade or negotiated free trade among the signatories to the WTO. And for the first time in about 60 years, um, agriculture is to be incorporated into these negotiations for a kind of free trade regime. Uh, That applies to all of these countries. Now, between the 1940s and the the 1990s, agriculture had specifically been excluded by the, the, the request of the U.S. from the GATT, which was what preceded the WTO. And it was kind of common sense or it was sort of implicitly understood that agriculture was a special sector, that governments had legitimate uh, role in regulating that sector and that it should not be a part of these free trade negotiations. So all that changes with the WTO in 1995. And so I think it is a, a very important watershed. And it's uh, kind of the the beginning of what some people have called the corporate food regime. So the, what's, what's so different now is that this uh, kind of um, idea of free trade or trade liberalization becomes the new common sense and the idea is that we need to open up the international market to uh, more uh, trade we need to dismantle government supports to agriculture you know we need to get rid of um, institutions like the Canadian wheat board uh, certainly that's that's an argument coming from some quarters and uh, and so on and and um, so again, a new set of sort of uh, understandings about how the world uh, food trade should be organized. And of course, the other really significant thing is that food corporations and farm input corporations like the chemical uh, manufacturers and the seed companies and so on have at this point become hugely important to that world food system, in fact, these become very powerful transnational corporations that have developed networks of production and distribution and sale really all around the world. So in a certain sense, then the third food regime is one where these corporate interests are becoming much more influential over the way that that international food trade works compared to the post-war period and, you know, well into the 1970s and 80s when it was governments and public institutions that were the most important.
1: Ah, Okay. So we have, we have then three main food regimes, a UK centered one in the late 19th century up until World War I, a period of transition through the two world wars, a post-war mercantile industrial food regime from 1945 until the early 1970s. Uh, a second period of transition until the 1990s, and then the corporate, or I believe in the book you call it, the corporate environmental food regime that has has existed roughly, with qualifications, yes. since then. Can we can we consider the theoretical and methodological foundation of this study, which is the idea of a food regime sure. itself? Can you tell us about that and and how that has Helped you understand this really long term and multifaceted process?
0: Sure. Uh, this approach to uh, kind of the political economy of agriculture uh, came out of a couple of different strands of theory. On the one hand, world systems theory, which looks at the history of uh, capitalism over a very long period of time and understands capitalism as fundamentally a system. Uh, An international system that that has always uh, incorporated uh, numerous uh, different states uh, or countries and and an international division of labor. So what's what's uh, distinctive about world systems theory, um, uh, its approach to capitalism is that it doesn't. it disagrees with the idea that you can you can uh, identify capitalism in one country. So for the world systems thinkers, capitalism is by nature an international system with an international division of labor. Uh, one of the ideas coming out of that line of thinking was the uh, notion of a hegemonic uh, power at different moments in capitalist history. So the hegemonic power is a leading. Uh, state power, a leading country that is economically and politically dominant for a certain period of time. And with that, the the power that comes with that role allows it to, in a certain sense, set some of the rules of the international order and of the international capitalist economy. So that's a, you know, a very brief um, look at world systems theory. Um, Then, you know, some of the other influences on food regimes were uh, regulation theory coming out of france which is another way of kind of periodizing capitalism if you will and looking at different modes of uh, uh, production and regulation of capitalism at different periods and what uh, the the kind of pioneers of food regimes theory did uh, they were uh, harriet friedman and philip mcmichael was take some of these ideas and start to think about um, how you could connect the history of capitalism over the long term to the international production and distribution and consumption of food. Now obviously food is absolutely fundamental to to our societies. It's it's fundamental to social reproduction uh, and it's fundamental to capitalism in the sense that of course workers need to eat, well everyone needs to eat, Um, but the price of food and how it gets produced and distributed is fundamentally important to Uh, you know, harnessing that labor power into the capitalist mode of production. So Friedman and McMichael wrote this very influential paper in 1989 that lays this out for the first time. And they essentially propose that if we look at capitalist history since about the 1870s, we can identify, uh, at that time, they were talking about two food regimes, which were basically periods where you had a certain um, stability in the rules of engagement and the structures in place for this international uh, food system. And it lasted basically as long as the hegemonic power uh, lasted uh, as well. So in the the late 19th century, it was the UK with its sort of free trade uh, philosophy and policy which fundamentally reshaped the way that food production and distribution happened, right? It's because the UK adopted a policy of uh, free trade and stopped protecting its domestic farmers that it created this massive demand for wheat and meat and other products. And that fundamentally transformed different parts of the world, like like Canada, the U S and Australia, which uh, stepped in to produce those products and, and, uh, pump them into the international trade um, so this was the idea right behind the food regime uh, thesis was that looking back at history you can identify these periods where uh, hegemonic power kind of uh, shaped the whole, uh, the, whole the, the all of the arrangements of the uh, food production distribution and consumption on a very large scale
1: and one thing that I really appreciate about the food regime is the way that it helps you bring into conversation multiple groups or interests or actors. And so you'll frequently uh, in the book, you'll you'll be discussing the Canadian prairies and you'll note, say, the importance of the farmers uh, as as a productive unit in the family farm, but also as social movements that that will um, push for certain political changes, the role of the Canadian government in regulating this, the role of uh, things like uh, transportation infrastructure. And then on the other hand, we have, say, uh, the role of the British government, the British milling and baking industries, and British consumers. And, and I really appreciate the way that the food regime you know, provides a language and a framework to pull all of these diverse actors together.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's very important, right? Um, uh, you know, one one of the criticisms of the food regimes approach ha- at times has been that it's kind of too structuralist, that it's a bit deterministic, and so on. And I think there's been some work in the last twenty years or so to try and correct that. But you're quite right. The idea is that uh, you know a food regime is not just uh, it's not just an abstraction. It's actually a set of relationships and uh, and rules and, and even frames of understanding frames of reference that guide people's behavior and it does make sense to think about these different groups sometimes they're class interests like farmers versus you know the owners of the grain elevators and the and the railways uh, but also states or governments um, and social movements as well there's not you know farmers do and have acted as a social movement at times but consumers also have organized themselves into social movements in in ways that can then have a major influence on the way that these uh, international food relationships work.
1: Now you mentioned earlier that it's, that it's kind of a way to help periodize capitalism. And I I found that really effective in the book because uh, at at so many points, you'll, you'll discuss a certain food regime or a transitional period. And you'll really effectively, I think show how developments uh, that one within each of these phases of time, there are contradictions and that yes. the attempt to manage and handle these contradictions often then helps set the stage for and, and you know, lead into the, the next phase. And so one way to one way to see that, for example, is looking at in the late 19th century, the particular problems that Canadian prairie farmers faced and how the Canadian government, even before World War One, was moving in a direction of, of more regulation in the grain trade. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, farmers were, you know, is very interesting. They were very vulnerable in a certain way. They're, uh, you know, small scale uh, farmers with uh, with a little bit of land producing you know, one crop of commercial importance. There were crop rotations and so on, but wheat was really the linchpin of this whole agricultural economy. And so they were extremely dependent on the price of wheat. They were uh, dependent on export markets. And they were also dependent on the grain elevators, which, you know, is where the farmer takes... their grain to be delivered and then shipped out of the region the prairies is really you know the region is far from from everything um it was quite isolated and so you had to get that wheat to market by by train and that often meant uh shipping at a distance of some 1500 to 2000 kilometers right so a very long way so in some ways farmers are quite uh, dependent on these other actors in the grain trade, but the one thing they do have is numbers. And uh, certainly in the early prairie wheat economy they're also very politically influential because uh, they are most of the population and the whole you know project of developing this region uh, as a part of Canada depends on the success of the wheat economy. So what you start seeing in the uh, even the late 1800s and into the early 1900s is farmers getting organized, forming um, associations or farmers unions, and then lobbying or pressing the government for uh, regulations that will protect them from the private interests of the the trade. Uh, So I think it's very early on, uh, it's around 1912 or so, that the Canadian government brings in the Canada Grain Act, which is uh, some, you know, a law is quite wide ranging in its regulation of the grain trade, but it puts in place some really important protections for farmers uh, and especially uh, at the point when they're dealing with the grain, uh, the grain elevators. For instance, it protects them in terms of uh, how their grain gets graded. It allows for independent testing of their grain so that the elevator agent isn't cheating them, for example, telling them it's a, it's a number two hard wheat when actually it's a number one hard wheat that would fetch a much higher price. There's regulations on weighing the grain to make sure that the, the elevator agent isn't messing around with the scales and shortchanging farmers. So it's it's interesting to me that the government at this point is quite prepared to put in place regulations that protect this very important political class, uh, the farmers, from the powerful private interests of the grain trade.
1: Is it fair to say that the goal of the Canadian government at this point, just before World War I, is to respond to the political pressure of these farmers' movements and to basically ensure a, maybe a minimum income or a minimum price or minimum viability for the prairie farm economy?
0: Yeah, I mean, that comes a bit later. Uh, you know, originally the government governments are quite hesitant to Uh, to interfere in the marketing or selling of wheat. Um, So they're prepared to regulate the trade, make sure that farmers are treated fairly at the grain elevator and so on. But they're quite uh, wary of interfering in the market itself. Uh, And where that changes is with, uh, with World War I, actually. And the first time the government experiments with a kind of government based marketing or selling of grain is in 1919, 1920, after the end of the First World War, when the international wheat market was um, so chaotic that the government felt it had to step in and basically collect wheat on behalf of farmers and um, take charge of selling that wheat um, so, so that farmers would get paid. Uh, the best price that that could be uh, realized in the world market. So it's it's an interesting moment because it's a kind of an experiment that the government um, undertakes. And farmers are quite pleased with this, right? They they, um, have a bit more certainty and a bit more stability. Uh, One of the things that farmers were very, um, very frustrated with was that of course, given the seasonal nature of wheat production, everybody is looking to sell their wheat at the same time. So there's a big glut of wheat in the fall, and farmers found that the you know if, if they really needed to sell that wheat right away, the price was always much lower in the fall when the elevators knew that there were uh, you know there was just a glut of wheat on the market. So farmers felt very uh, sort of dependent on that, and uh, depending on that whether or not they could withhold some grain and sell it a bit later had a huge effect on the price that they got. Well, with this first wheat board that was brought in by the government at, after the end of World War One, um, that was no longer the case. The government basically said, we uh, are fixing a minimum price. We will collect all the wheat, and we'll sell, sell it over the course of a period of months, and then we will return whatever proceeds over and above that minimum price back to you, the farmer. So farmers get stability uh, and predictability, which is something that they're, they're really after.
1: And this is really tied closely to the, the notion of quality that you discuss in, in the text and how uh, Canadian wheat earns a certain reputation for quality in the late 19th century. And that has profound effects on, on the whole trajectory of prairie wheat. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Sure. Yeah, that's another very important piece. Uh, from early on, um, wheat buyers recognize that Canadian wheat has this special quality, which is basically it's got a, a higher protein uh, content than just than wheat that that you can grow just about anywhere else. And so, the, the government and the the, the wheat uh, industry. Is very interested on kind of capitalizing on that in order to get fetch a better price for uh, their wheat and develop markets for Canadian wheat so quite early on and I believe is in the 1920s and 30s the government is already implementing certain rules about introducing new wheat varieties so basically anyone who wants to develop a new wheat variety and introduce it into the system has to prove that that wheat is superior to what already exists and specifically superior in terms of quality, yield, and so on and so forth. And if for any reason it's you know found to be not a benefit, and a net benefit to farmers, uh, the government won't allow it to be introduced. So in that way, the government is kind of taking a hand in ensuring that... Quality of the wheat crop. And this becomes kind of the brand for Canadian wheat, which is uh, this high quality, high protein wheat that is really well suited to industrial bread production.
1: Now, how does so? We've mentioned before that uh, the Canadian prairies are, you know, linked in this food regime to especially British consumers. How do British bread preferences and Baking techniques and milling techniques play into this notion of quality. And, and how does that change over the, especially the middle of the 20th century?
0: There's a really interesting uh, history there. Starting in the late 1800s, the, the UK starts adopting a new technology called steel roller milling. So these are huge industrial plants that will turn that grain into flour. But the process is uh, very different from the older technology, which was stone milling, in that it flattens the, the grain of wheat and uh, allows for a very easy separation of the bran, from uh, the wheat germ, uh, from and, and the the other part of the, the wheat kernel, and so stone milling allows you to produce a very uh, white flour and to take out all, unfortunately, take out all of the the nutrients that are found in the wheat germ and in the bran.
1: Oh, Roll them And that really.
0: That? Pardon me.
1: Roller milling does that, right? Stone Roller, stone milling is that's right. right.
0: Yeah, and so uh, what starts happening around this time is that um, consumers start really, uh, really preferring white bread that is uh, produced with this new uh, type of flour to anything else. And it, it's it's an interesting kind of historical story because uh, at one time white bread was considered something that was um, well, it was more expensive and it was associated with sort of uh, higher class uh, consumers. And so once white uh, flour and white bread become a lot cheaper and more accessible, well, you know, that really catches on and everybody wants to be eating this sort of new industrial white bread. And um, that of course, that is something that drives demand for Canadian wheat, which is ideally suited for this particular kind of... Um, Uh, processing uh, technology. So what you find is a rapid shift over to white bread. And in fact, um, there's even this uh, movement in the early 1900s in the UK, where uh, consumers are uh, lobbying the government not to to restrict imports of, of wheat from abroad, because they've come to depend on this cheap white loaf. This becomes kind of their rallying cries. They want to keep bread uh, cheap. And that depends on uh, keeping the market open to North American wheat. Um, What uh, happens a little bit later during the World Wars is uh, because of the shortages of wheat uh, at the time, the government actually imposes a rule where millers have to... Rather than producing white wheat, where all the all the nutrients have been, or many of the important nutrients have been extracted, they require the millers to produce brown uh, flour, which is that much more nutritious. So it's, it's sort of a, a the notion is that the government is rationing the nutrients in the wheat grain by. Uh, forcing the millers and and processors to keep those nutrients in the in the flour and so wartime bread is brown bread which people don't like
1: no not at all (laughs) no and, and it has a much higher extraction rate so the way the way the millers describe that uh is is through how much of the of the grain or how much of the sort of total mass of the grain is extracted in the milling process. And, and I, I found it remarkable how you noted that before uh, World War I, the normal extraction rate was, I think, about 70 or 71%. So, so you run a certain quantity of wheat through a mill, 70-ish percent of that comes out as flour. But during the war, they, they bump it up to 80 some percent. And eventually, it, uh, by the end of the war, it's over 90% which must have been a very brown loaf, uh, indeed.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's very close to sort of 100% whole wheat uh, bread. But yeah, I found that a a really fascinating example of government intervention to um, regulate the the nutritional quality of this really important food staple um, for people. But, uh, you know, as a result of that, people sort of come, came to resent wartime bread or war bread. And as soon as uh, the, those wartime controls were lifted in the late 40s, uh, people went straight back to buying white bread from uh, from the local uh, bakers and, and grocery stores and so on. And uh, what the bread industry did because the government was concerned about the nutritional quality of, of this bread, is the industry essentially brought in artificial fortification of bread. So, And again, this was a new technology, but they found ways to reintroduce some of those missing nutrients like uh, iron and, and uh, B vitamins back into the, into the bread supply through artificial uh, means so that people could go on consuming their loaves of white bread.
1: And so that, to some extent, would you say that that represents a redefinition of quality in this, I guess that would be in the second stable food regime that, that has then a different definition of quality from the first one?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's very typical of that post-war period where there's a huge amount of uh, innovation in in the food processing and food uh, manufacturing sector. You get all kinds of new products, all sorts of new frozen foods and processed foods, and so on. It's sort of the heyday of that highly processed food. It's well before people start looking at the ingredient list in detail to look at the different preservatives and additives and so on and so forth, and indeed. These new products are associated with convenience and modernity and other values that are that are very um, common, very popular at this time, that's sort of post-war optimism. So I don't think, you know, there's not much of a backlash against this uh, fortified bread. Uh, in a sense, you know, it's the heyday of Wonder Bread in, in North America. That same sort of phenomenon is happening over in the UK as well.
1: And then how has the definition of quality continued to evolve uh, especially in this, in the period of transition from the 1970s or in the sort of final food regime that, that you described from the 1990s on?
0: Yeah, the thinking is that in the third food regime from the 1990s on, uh, one of the driving forces for change is greater consumer awareness of nutrition and health and so on and so forth. So you get people uh, becoming more aware, better educated in, in many, uh, cases of what goes into their food and demanding fewer additives, fewer preservatives, uh, you know, a shorter ingredient list, more natural ingredients and so on. And uh, of course you have to be careful here. I mean, it's, sort of a certain class segment of the market that becomes hyper aware of food quality. And it's not everyone who can afford to look for those higher quality and often more expensive foods. But this does become a motor force, I think, for changes. And food industries respond by introducing, uh, well, more products and sort of a a product differentiation strategy where you might have, uh, you know, a really expensive loaf of bread, on the one hand, you know, for $4 a loaf or, or more in cases, and then your rock bottom uh, basic uh, white loaf of bread for uh, $2 or something like that. So you get a differentiation of the market.
1: And the term that you used in the book that I, I found fascinating, uh, it's a, a terrific term, is premiumization.
0: Uh, yeah, and specifically in the UK bread market, what's happening in the 1980s is there's kind of a price war among the big bread manufacturers. And at this point, we're still talking about your basic white bread, but um, it, you know people are selling it so cheaply as a loss leader to get people through the supermarket door. Uh, there's this crazy story I came across at one point in my research of farmers in the UK buying bread off the shelves in huge quantities and feeding it to their sheep because the loaves were so cheap it was actually uh cheaper than buying uh feed for for those animals so uh, you know in the 80s this this sort of uh thing was uh, a huge concern to to food manufacturers and um there's this company named Warburtons that that comes along into sort of a regional Bread manufacturer in the 1980s, and they say, "Hey, wait a minute! Uh, you know, we think there's a market for higher quality bread product that we can sell for a lot more, and maybe that's a way out of this kind of race to the bottom for for the regular bread market." So they start developing this strategy in the 1980s and into the 90s, and uh, they are the ones who I've argued kind of lead the premiumization of the the bread market in the UK. Now that doesn't mean that everyone's all, all of a sudden buying these more this more expensive bread, but it's a successful enough strategy that, like as I said before, on the same you know supermarket shelf, you have a huge range of different products at different price points, and some people are prepared to pay more for what they consider to be a higher quality product. In some cases, maybe a more uh, nutritious product or a more environmentally friendly product and war really capitalizes on that trend
1: that the story of feeding sheep that the store-bought bread is absolutely terrific (laughs) is wonderful and i think (laughs) it's
0: by far by far the weirdest uh bit of uh of uh, information i came across
1: definitely definitely and i think it's a good way into into a final segment here i'd like to talk about the research process and how you approach this particular this particular topic and you know, where you turned for your your data?
0: Sure. Uh, well, it was a, a pretty um, sort of multifaceted uh, research process, I would say. On the one hand, I was digging through historical statistics. Uh, often, you know, these, these were kept very meticulously by either Canadian uh, government officials or uh, British government officials. Um, so some of those things were really helpful. I read a lot of the um, kind of his secondary historical literature on the UK uh, food market, the food industry, the bread industry specifically. Uh, same goes for the Canadian wheat economy. There's a huge historical literature um, uh, around this, and uh, certainly in the even as far back as the 20s, 30s, and 40s. People were writing pretty detailed studies of how this whole process of developing the wheat economy had had come about. Um, I looked at historical materials of the Canadian Wheat Board, and these were often very well uh, well kind of preserved and organized as well. So I was able to go back to records for the Wheat Board uh, that went quite quite a ways back, and lots of interesting kind of internal. Uh, documents for that for that uh, organization government reports were an important part of the, the source material as well um, the weed economy has been kind of a perennial you know big big uh, policy question on the prairies so every so often you'd get a government commission or royal, royal Commission or a new report and those were often really helpful in understanding what was happening at that time and, and you know how it affected all the different players. And then uh, the last thing I would mention is that I did uh, quite a few interviews with grain industry actors uh, in Canada. I was able to interview some of the officials uh, with Warburtons uh, at the U- in, from the UK because they actually would come to Canada every year to um, test the, the wheat quality and. Um, Uh, Thankfully, the Canadian Wheat Board was very gracious in allowing me to interview a number of their officials and they were able to give me a a really good sort of insider's look at how that organization worked.
1: Well, that is terrific. Uh, Can you, uh, by way of closing, would you care to tell us what you're working on now? Uh, Any new projects you have uh, lined up or, you know, maybe already simmering away?
0: Sure. Well, I'm still interested in this whole question of wheat marketing and wheat selling and so on. Uh, the wheat board has been gone now for just about six years, so I'm um, interested in how that's affecting prairie farmers. But uh, mostly, my research these days is on investor ownership and investor uh, purchases of farmland. Um, as so, there's this uh, area in my in my field. Uh, where people are looking into what's called the financialization of agriculture. Basically, the way in which new investors are um, pouring money into things like farmland or uh, other parts of the agricultural value chain. And my interest is in how that could be affecting farmers and rural communities.
1: Terrific. Well, we look forward to hearing much more from you in the future. Uh, Andre Magnin, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. I really enjoyed the book and I had a great time talking.
0: Thanks so much.